Hey, Richard Gottlieb. Chris Bird. How you doing? All I can say is, wow. 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 Oh, my gosh. We're getting pretty good at these these uh, punny introductions. This is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. We are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, the toy guy and marketing and media agency, Chizcom. And the wowie joke was... Well, well-timed because we are joined by Sydney Weissman, who is VP Creative and Brand Strategy for Wowie, and second-generation Wowie, Andrew Yanoski, who is Head of Marketing and Operations, and it is so great to be with you guys. Thanks for having you, us. <laughs> you too. Thanks for having us. And let me just say, too, even before we start, Sid is also second-gen, so the funny story of this family biz is that it's truly family. Sid's mom used to be a veterinarian and had a change of heart. Uh, mid-career and entered the toy business too uh, inside Wowie. So Gail still works for us. Yeah, Gail's Sid's mom and Gail's my dad's sister. So it's all uh, one big toy family operation. <laughs> well, that is so much like the, the old school toy industry, right? That was that was what the, these family companies that grew up in the, in the early part of the 20th century and especially after the Second World War, these were family-based companies and, and small actually. But, uh, and you guys are small and nimble. Why don't we start out with the history of Wowie? I, ha- I have a bone to pick with you guys, though, because on your website, it said it all started with RoboSapien. But old folks like me remember back to 2001 when BioBugs was in the center of the huge Hasbro showroom. You guys were probably in rompers uh, coming in from grade school to see this. I guess the spark notes of Wowie history, at least from let's talk from the perspective of Generation 2. So BioBugs. I was 11 years or 12 years old at this time. I was testing them out at home. Uh, <laughs> we had even cool before about- that, though. We had Go Go Power Rangers. There oh, my gosh. That was you, up. too. Oh, I forgot yeah. about that. Right. That's the real so start. The gloves, <laughs> yeah. the gloves are the real start. Exactly right. Yeah, the Power Ranger gloves. And I forget the partnership. But, yes, that was definitely one of the first things that put uh, Wowie on the map were those Power Ranger gloves. Were you one of the original Power Rangers? I was testing those. I was getting beat up by my older brother Michael, who's not joining us yet. But uh, we were we were testing those out at home also, and he would uh, always see how well they worked as he uh, beat the crap out of me. My memory of you guys is I think you substantially invented the toy robotics category for the toy industry. There's some amazing stories, especially animatronic stuff too. So while we at one point was doing the development and execution for the discovery animals line. So they were these uh, slush molded mechanical animal toys under the discovery brand. And that was a major section. That was actually the start of the Wowie and Hasbro relationship because Hasbro at the time was the master rights holder on the Jurassic franchise. And there was a lot of development know-how that would be applicable and a lot of the conversations between Wowie and Hasbro started around that first premise. One of the things that I think is important for the toy industry is that we bring in more people, you're right, who are simpatico with your generation because you're, you're part of it. And you're digital natives. I, I like to say that you can either be a digital native or a digital immigrant, which I am. I speak digital, but with an accent. (laughs) Uh, You you never make the trip. So from where you sit, both of you, and you look at our industry, 
How does it look to you from the point of view of someone who's a 21st century adult? It's definitely interesting. I think something that we've been saying all year at Wowie that I think we're going to start owning more is big kid energy. And that's like Wowie to a T. I think all of us making toys, it's like this big kid energy that fuels all the toys that we make. I think we're very lucky that we're surrounded by youth, but it's very funny that you say the, the, with like the immigrant thing, because even the world is changing so, so fast and things like TikTok and things like Roblox and all of these terms that we're, we're even one level up from that generation. So it's really, I think internally, it's how do we stay as youthful as we possibly can as toys change so drastically every single day which makes it incredibly fun and incredibly exhilarating, but also very hard and very interesting for us to always be on top of it. And I think a lot of how we're looking at toys internally, especially as like kids of the 21st century is, okay, it's changing every second. And we're used to this speed at how things change. I think the thing that's really great for our generation specifically is we were like already on the cusp of this. I think when it comes to trends, Although we may not be the generation that is playing Roblox 24-7, we're definitely a generation that's like, oh, Roblox is happening 24-7. What can we do to play in this space? And then also, who do we have to add to our team who can educate us to make sure that we are really <laughs> keeping up with the trends as fast as they're changing? It's an outstanding answer because we are in our essence a industrial age business. We came of age in Germany because they were kuklark makers. And the original toys were mechanical toys. So you guys are really taking us out of that and into a really highly technological age. I think one thing I would add too to that, Richard, is this idea of community. And we are seeing a lot of toys today winning on community. And that could be influencer-based toys. That could be TikTok-based toys. That could be Roblox-based toys. But these micro-segments that have been enabled by technology and COVID and these new platforms emerging every other day, I think is a major moment culturally for the toy industry in general. Say a little bit more about community, because I've believed for a long time that brands are, in essence, communities. And that is how people identify themselves increasingly. That's how they engage with others around a brand. But we've got so many of them now. It's not like the community of Saturday morning, three channels, TV. It's the community of... Uh, hey, that's my community. Yeah, well, mine too. Mine too is my, my backyard. <laughs> but but it's, also, it's also the idea that there's the Paw Patrol silo. There's the Shopkins silo. And they don't really correlate, but they are communities in and of themselves. A lot of the communities coalesce too. So you have like the super niche community around the interest. And then you have like these larger circles on the fringes that it's all the same YouTube creators talking about the same things and playing the same games and creating and biting the same trends on TikTok. And it's the the focus of the toy maker today is to sort of pick up and be first to these emerging communities that are constantly emerging, I think is what's really interesting. I think it is very important to show what tribe you're a member of which did not used to be the case. What role do you think community therefore plays in how we engage these really micro groups? That's, I think that you just touched on a really good point. I think the word micro is really important where the world is changing. I think every year 
marketing becomes so much more specific. It used to be TV, broad, mass, everyone watching the same thing at once. And then it kind of went to influencers who had mass awareness to mass groups of people, right? And then that almost started to lose its credibility because it's, okay, they're promoting all these items and too many items and what do they actually like or what don't they like anymore? And now it's in this new place of micro-influencers and, oh, I follow this mom and she may only have 25,000 followers, but everything that she shares, is I really identify with. Therefore, if she says, buy this toy or my kid is playing with this toy, it means so much more to me, you know? And I think that is really interesting where moms are concerned and marketing. And then also take that one step further to kids and Roblox and community. Now it's different than them watching their favorite celebrity on TV, on the Disney channel. Now it's, oh, my YouTube star is in a Roblox game playing right now. And I can actually go talk to her. And then I can go see all of these kids who I don't know. We're all in the same environment. We all love this YouTube celebrity. And hey, I just made 10 other new friends during this experience. And then I'm going to ask that kid, what is she playing with right now? And what's her favorite toy? And then through that, it's like all of these micro communities are being made. And it's like the most, not to bring it back to selling toys, but it becomes the most credible source of this is cool. I should be playing with this. I don't know what this is yet. I need to go find out what this is. And mom, can I have this? <laughs> you know, I think that the thing about a micro community, if you've got 25,000 people there, those are much more qualified potential customers than 250,000 or 2.5 million consumers in something that's just going to fly by and not going to be paid attention to because your viewer of those 25,000 is already deeply invested in that person. So no what's question. going on with the Wowie tribe? What do you get coming out? Can you tell us any insider stuff? We basically announced a partnership with GameFam, who is one of the largest Roblox developers. And they have a game called Twilight Daycare. And we actually explored it last year as a marketing exercise to get some of our brands that we were launching last year into Roblox. So we started with my squishy little dumplings in Twilight Daycare. And it was so successful that kids thought the squishy little dumplings were a toy from Twilight Daycare. And we were like, nope, <laughs> toy you can purchase, <laughs> not the toy from Twilight Daycare. But the amount of millions of kids that were like, wow, a toy from Twilight Daycare. We went to GameFam and we we're like, let's do the toys for the brand. So we have uh, 18 collectible babies, Twilight Daycare babies coming out for fall and really fun. They're actually, so you get your baby, the costume, a toy, and then you can actually scan it into the Twilight Daycare game and play as that baby in the game. And those of you at home can't see what Chris and I see, and we're seeing one Twilight baby with a unicorn. A little unicorn baby. Yeah, another one wearing a banana peel. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> I have both of them next to me because so the real funny thing about back to community so I have these two because I was about to make a TikTok video in which I was going to ask kids whether they prefer the banana or the unicorn. We've been, we created a TikTok channel that has a bunch of kids who are super engaged and moms, and we've been using it to kind of ask for feedback on early product development. So Twilight Daycare was one that picked up right away. The videos were getting hundreds of thousands of views, and we've actually been able to show, for example, the unicorn. Do you guys want a pink unicorn or a blue unicorn? And they'll all vote pink. And now we're doing pink unicorns. Or what should we name the unicorn baby? And we have thousands of kids, right? It's back what they should name the baby. And we're using that to get them involved in the community. And all of the toys will actually end up being a result of the information that we got from TikTok. 
the idea of community, right, and the extent to which you make the community part of. So it's not just about capturing this small community because they're really interested, but the degree to which you bring them along and make them part of the mission, of the evolution, is, I think, the unlock for the future. And I think it's brilliant. I think what you guys are doing is, is in my favorite mixed metaphor, on the cutting edge of the next wave, because it really, it, it really is what people need to be thinking about. And as I talk to toy companies and I talk to marketers, many marketers of my generation, they're scratching their head and they're still going, but we're putting it on TV. That's not as relevant anymore in a world where most of the kids are watching stuff on YouTube. So I love the fact that you are expanding into all these different areas and being able to interact with your consumer. And it's okay to not know about a new emerging platform. The trick is to actually jump into the deep end and figure it out alongside your community and bring them along as you do. As you certainly know, Toy Fair has been moved up and the future will occur in September instead of February. It's quite a uh, fundamental change. I wrote the other day that when the first Toy Fair took place, you couldn't take a plane because it hadn't been invented yet. So, <laughs> wow. And, and you couldn't take the subway because it wasn't open yet. So my question to you is, what do you think your generation of toy professionals, how do you view Toy Fair? I love it. It's the highlight of my year, truly. I was so sad. The past two years making toys in a silo has been very different, interesting to say the least. But I'm talking specifically me, like making toys. Actually, it's to see buyers and press and you guys interact with them and just show excitement. Like there's the expression that everyone gives good toy fair. Like everyone loves everything that you're showing. Right. <laughs> it's very true, but it's really rewarding. And like, it's really nice to see what people gravitate towards in the masses. And sure it's exhausting, but like the community, talk about community. I think the toy community is the most special, most playful community that I've like we're so lucky to do what we do and to work with so many people that truly are my very good friends in life. And I think Toy Fair in New York in February will be missed for that. It's been really missed from that aspect. I think time of year, personally, I, I don't think September or whatever it's moving to, I, I don't think that is necessarily the worst thing ever. We always sometimes scratch our heads around Toy Fair and just the involvement that goes into planning Toy Fair in February when everything's already locked and loaded and there's no real changes to be made. We used to show in LA in September and that's when true real decisions and, hey, can you change this still? And so I think it actually probably makes more sense from a manufacturer standpoint to be showing at that time. It'll also help us get ourselves buttoned up <laughs> way sooner <laughs> than New York Toy Fair in February. But yeah, it's a change. But I think, again, back to our generation, we're so fluid and we're so adaptable that it's like, okay, we'll just make the best of it. And whatever happens in September, let's go. We're up for the challenge. And what about New York City? There's been talk, you know, we need to move it somewhere else. Do you feel any particular affinity for New York as the home of this show or do you think it could be anywhere? Personally, anywhere. And I don't know. I think there's like what we've seen over the years is like there's four or five toy cities globally. Right. right. Um, I think in the U.S. It, it's New York or L.A. And I think, I, you know, I'm reading a lot and, you know, listening to some industry peers talk about, well, 
the manufacturers are, are based here. It makes life a lot easier. Why can't we make LA the destination? I think there's an argument for that. That makes sense in, in principle. I think New York is really accessible and really nice for the international community to not have to travel to the other end of the globe. So I understand New York from that perspective. It, it's sort of like uh, New York is neutral territory. No toy companies are really based there, but everyone is a reasonable plane ride away. I want to talk about technology because that's what Wowie is is really known for or, or was traditionally known for. RoboSapien back in, what, 2004 when it came out had seven motors. I don't remember what it cost. It was a lot. It was like $200 or it was close to $200. And for that toy fair, it was a big story. But the technology was the story and and what it did. And what I'm seeing in what you're introducing now is – not technology that is the news, but technology that drives play and is almost, in some cases, almost invisible to the child. It delivers the magic, but the technology isn't the point. How have you as a company evolved to what I perceive to be where you are today? We always talk about this internally, because even just in terms of Wowie and where we want to take it, especially second generation, and our slogan used to be astonishing imagination. And I think Although we are still that, I think the difference between technology and innovation is something that is where we shifted our perspective at Wowie. So it used to be so tech heavy. And I do still think you will expect some amazing tech pieces to come out from us because I think it's our DNA and it's what we're amazing at. And we never want to shy away from that and making really, really cool stuff. But I think what we've also started to really implement is innovation in terms of just special and magic. I think it's how do you put magic in toys? Something even like the Twilight Daycare Babies, right? Like it's not tech innovation, but going after a unique market of Roblox audience and making them baby dolls that are more on the pinks and purples and unicorns that scan back into a game, innovative, you know? So I think it's all in terms of how we look at the word innovation. Sure, we'll have some really, really innovative stuff like the fairy jar, which I think is probably one of our most innovative, magical things we've done in a while. But I think even the way that we look at tech sensors and making things feel like they come to life more so than like what's the coolest tech we can put into everything, I think is really shifted internally. Where we, true to our wowie DNA, is we just want to put the magic in toys. We want to put the wow in toys is like where I think we're we're getting to and everything that we do wows to some capacity and it doesn't necessarily have to be the coolest newest tech it just has to be that the kid is the center of the play and everything that they touch they're going to say wow from 2004 to today there's been a lot more technology in the home as well and that that kids have a smartphone you don't have to design that technology because it's already there and some and they've already bought it or things like alexa or google home where do you see opportunities for leveraging existing technology for you? I mean, Roblox is a perfect example. You can scan the you can scan the toy into the game. You didn't have to build that technology. You just got to take advantage of it. How important is that for your innovation using the technology that's already existing in the home? I think it's key because I think if you're too early, Wowie over its history has definitely in its forward looking nature has has been too early. Like there was a line that we did called App Gear right? That was entirely based on the phone. And that stands on its own two feet in today's toy climate, never mind when it was introduced probably 10 years ago. So I think it has a lot to do, Chris, to your point about critical mass 
going to where there are already existing structures in place. I think in today's toy climate, it's much easier to build a toy and say the app is a central piece of the play pattern and not have families balk at the proposition around the price and what that means. And I still think what we find is parents today are still looking for toys to work straight out of the box like they always have, even without the app. And it's and technology is sort of a nice to have. It's a, it's a sprinkle on the cake is kind of how we're looking at it. My perception would be that while we would have been initially viewed as more of a boy-centric company, dinosaurs, robots, etc. Where do you think you are today as far as who your end user is from a, a gender standpoint? We're a girl to preschool company. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> we're... Uh... <laughs> Well, you are. are I I really like girly toys. I'm wearing pink. I like, no, um, I think there's been a big shift since Fingerlings, to be honest, just in terms of the audience that we have access to. It's really hard to speak in terms of gender norms. So I don't like, look, I'm going to, I'm going to use boy and girl, but like take it with a grain of salt because I actually don't know if I necessarily believe like boys action figures and that, but the boys on parentheses market is very, very license driven. And I think there's a lot of really good players in that space. And I think there's room for Wowie to do amazing tech and have that hero boys (laughs) or dinosaur or whatever item. And definitely in, in the plans and something that we are always working towards. I think what we've noticed is that preschool kids are getting older, younger. So like that preschool category is your boy, girl, everyone category that I think there's tremendous opportunity. I think it's license driven, but I think it's really, really open to newness and coolness. And I think we're really looking to start playing there because I think we really can. And then I think in this girls, the interesting thing about girls, what we always say internally at Wowie is that there's a social currency that's still attached to toys and that play pattern. So how many dolls do you have? Or what are you bringing in your knapsack to school today? And what are you going to share with your friends so that they want to get it too? Or what can you guys collect together? You know, and I think it's just a play pattern that extends past seven years old, you know? And I think, whereas, and it's not only, and I really, again, boys, I don't love saying it, but where video games come into play and the iPad and gaming takes away a certain audience at a much younger age than it used to. And I think what we've noticed is we're really good at making these interactive pet toys and you'll see what we have coming for next year. We're really starting to get good at making dolls. And I think we're really the preschool and girl side of things. I think one thing that Sid's not going to say outright, so I'll say it on a rehab, is the creative engine of we is derived today from Sid. No question. So Sid is like the perfect person to be in the seat our our grandfather used to say you can't spoil a good thing he would take us to toys r us almost every other weekend just take your pick sid's room as an as an eight-year-old had every brand under the sun (laughs) (laughs) and we're gonna get to that but what you know and also i'll go here with the gender thing there are inherent differences in how boys play and how girls play just biologically is who we are and i think fingerlings is a great example monster monster hit with girls and then you introduced fingerlings untamed with monsters and it was good but it never it never achieved that level and there was something about the nurture and the character and the eyes of the fingerlings that that was very appealing on a human level but it it tended to skew mostly to girls 
Well, to your, to that, that's actually a great point because what I think also, and especially in the toys that I, I try and make gender neutral, as gender neutral as you can keep things, I still think the better, even our dumplings last year, sure, probably sold to a girl's novelty shelf. That's what the shelf is called. Actually, they're changing it this year, I think. But if you look at people using it, I would say it was probably 70, 30 girls and boys. There still is a, a boy audience that's not going to be alienated by anything that we make that we really strive to make sure that there is something for everyone. We're launching a new line of these fashion fidget dolls. So they're little dolls that are $9.99. They have all the best elements of a fidget cube. And right off the bat, sure, we could have only done girl dolls, but no, like, why not? So we have boys in the mix as well. And we just always make sure that there is something for everyone, no matter who wants to play, because yeah, there are probably gender norms, but if a boy wants to play with these, he's as invited to play with them as a little girl who wants to play with them as well. And if you go back to the 1920s and even the original Erector Set book, it said, hey boys, and you look at toy catalogs from the 1920s and the, the girls' toys were all nurturing and housekeeping and things like that. And the boys' toys were, it was very, it was very differentiated by gender, but you don't need to do that anymore. And fingerlings actually was 60, 40 girls, boys. So there were a lot of boys that played with fingerlings as well. Just the monkey, like unto itself, not, not the dino. It dino was, was a so whole separate cute. Thing. The monkey was so cute. It was, it was so appealing. And I, I think that that's a human element, not a gender element. So you guys do a lot with tech and chips. How have you been affected by, by chip shortages? We were hearing about that last night in, in Biden's speech. How, how has that impacted you guys? And every other shortage. Let's just say we picked the craziest toy to make last pandemic, this fairy jar with screens and chips. You know, <laughs> it was, We were sold out of most places by November without the ability to bring in more inventory. So beauty was- of having two generations, I think, because you need some experience to go on a little bit less information too. And these decisions are being made so far out in advance as you speculate on how your year is going to map out and your requirements for your production and your interest from your customers and consumers. And it's really an art, not science type exercise. I think there's some science you can apply, but especially on a brand new item and in, in, uh, entering the market, there are challenges for sure that we had to figure out and overcome. So we're going to ask you our final question that we ask all our guests on season four of the Playground podcast. What was your favorite play experience as a child in Sydney, Europe? I had a few, honestly. <laughs> I had every single Polly Pocket possible. For sure was one of my biggest. Barbie, my whole life still to this day. I'm, I'm still a very big collector of anything that's different and cool and fun. Um, I think Barbie's, what is the reason for that? I still collect Barbies. And then I was always very much into the computer thing from the start. So I think like the Sims, I swear, even in terms of where my thoughts and stuff go now in terms of new developments, probably a lot of it comes from simulation games like the Sims and then probably even Tamagotchi as well for the fairy jar and for all of those types of things. Yeah, I was, I was very well-rounded in the 20 category. And no, no surprise, as we often say, that you can see where somebody's going to end up by how they played as a kid. Andrew, <laughs> Andrew, your turn. Funny. I, I have like, I had like three phases. I had my action figure phase super young and I played with a lot of Imaginex. I used to come home from elementary school and dress up as Batman or Power Rangers every day of my life. Um, those, those costumes were on just repeat. And then that evolved into like collector. So I was into Pogs and Beanie Babies and Crazy Bones and obviously Pokemon cards. I was a major collector. And then the biggest imprint on my toy life is in gaming. I'm, I'm a, I still play video games to this day and I'm 31 
And I still remember what I was wearing when I got a Nintendo 64 for the first time. And I still remember playing Mario Kart for the first time. And I'm a major, major video game fan. Sydney Weissman, Vice President Creative and Brand Strategy, and Andrew Yanofsky, Head of Marketing and Operations, both from Wowee. You guys are amazing. Uh, what a great conversation, and thank you so much for spending the time with us today. You're very impressive, and I think Wowee's in very good hands. This is the Playground Podcast, and we'll be right back with the end cap. And now we come to the part of the show that we call the end cap, where Richard and I toss around ideas that are top of mind in the toy industry. And of course, we're going into a full month of the war in Ukraine, and it's having its economic impact. But we wondered, what is the implication going to be for the toy industry? Because the toy industry really is always a microcosm of the larger consumer products industry in, in many respects. And Richard, you've been doing some uh, homework on this. And Chris, you know, we, we hear a lot about the economics of this war. I went ahead and took a look at Russia and the Ukraine. And by the way, between those two countries, it's close to $1.5 billion in the, in, in a, in the toy economy. Uh, when you look at Russia, Ukraine, and all the countries that border Russia, it's about $2.5 billion in the toy economy. So uh, this does uh, affect the global uh, toy market. Eastern Europe, which, which some have called New Europe, and which constitutes countries like Poland and Belarus, are sources of manufacturing for the toy industry. I know here in the United States, most of our goods come out of China, but if you're in Europe, Eastern Europe is a good alternative mm -hmm. because uh, it, it's a lower cost labor force and they produce a, a quality product. I'm thinking if I'm in one of these countries bordering on Russia, or even if I'm in a country like Finland, which also borders Russia, I'm not feeling real safe right now. And I'm thinking that has to have minimally a psychological impact on your decision making. Sure. Because you don't know if this war could spread. Plus, we don't know. There are toy companies, companies in Ukraine that manufacture toys. I've spoken to people here in the States that have personal relationships with these folks in the Ukraine toy industry. So uh, we are a global business, and what is happening uh, in the Ukraine uh, affects us all. I agree, and it's not just toys. I think that one of the things we've been reading about has been that the it's 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 a little bit granular, but the the neon needed to make the lasers that make microchips comes out of Ukraine. More than 50% of the neon for those lasers comes out of the Ukraine. And as we talked to Jay Foreman, who was saying it was 240 days to get a chip up from 90 days, the implication is that it's going to be even longer. So it's going to expand the development time. It may have people use fewer chips in toys, but at the same time, it's not just toys. It's automotive. It's every industry. And when you can get product, prices are going to go up. And Chris, it's food. 
Ukraine is the breadbasket of Europe. Right. It's a major grain-producing country. The cost of bread and wheat and the availability of wheat is going to go up dramatically in cost. Another element that's been affected by this war has been nickel, which is used in batteries. Batteries, yeah. And the price went up so dramatically in one day that they shut the market down. Wow. So the implications are pretty great. And I think that what this points out is, <laughs> this is this is a no-brainer to any of us who, who read history, is that war is destabilizing, and it's economically destabilizing. But I think this war, more than other wars, has been destabilizing because of the global economy, because... It's it's affecting New Europe because it's affecting Russia, because it is going to have implications for the West in ways that other wars haven't. And I think that's going to be a long-term challenge to businesses in general, but also the toy industry specifically, not just for product, but for entertainment and distribution and the ongoing globalization, which is just going to increase of the industry. Yes, and we really are at a point in history when it is very difficult to predict what is going to happen. We can predict what is likely to happen, but even there, the implications of what is happening for the global economy and for the markets in terms of inflation and the continuing destabilization of the supply chain, you know, Ships are having to reroute. Chris, when we go to Hong Kong, most of the trips, we fly over Siberia. I was going to say that, yeah. You can't do that right now. Right. Which makes the trip much longer. Uh, It makes hauling air freight uh, (laughs) a lot more difficult. So we really need to watch this thing, and we need to hope that this thing, this war can be resolved quickly. Absolutely. I think it's important for the economy, but of course, in saying that, we also know it's important for the people and the countries and who are suffering as a result of this and the millions of people who have been displaced. And it does seem a little bit like talking about this as small potatoes, but we do acknowledge everybody who is suffering. And the implications, and it's going to take a while to to rebuild. So yes, Richard, we do hope that that there's going to be a quick resolution to this so the bombing can stop, so people can stop suffering, and that life can begin the process of returning to whatever normal is and healing. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening. This is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. We are brought to you by... Global Toy Experts, The Toy Guy, and marketing and media agency Chizcom. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll tune in next time.